And today we're talking about the parable of the prodigal son. You may have heard this story many times, but I have a feeling you're going to learn some things today that will forever change the way you see this passage. Curious? I hope so. Keep listening. Hey, it's another episode of Doable Discipleship. My name is Doug Jones. And I'm Jason Wheeland. And uh, this is a Saddleback Church podcast designed to help you deepen your friendship with God, but we like to call it the show that helps you grow. And today we're continuing our series on the parables of Jesus. Now, over the next several weeks, we're going to be discussing the seven key, core, main, primary, go-to themes found in the parables of Jesus. You got other words that mean the same thing? No, Doug's thesaurus is probably closed for the rest of the day. Now, these aren't the only themes that are found in the parables, so don't be like, what about this and what about that? We get it. Yeah, you're probably right. (laughs) You're probably right. There are lots of other themes. But these are the most prominent ones, the ones that Jesus taught most often. And today's theme is that the Lord is merciful and gracious. So it, let's let's start with some definitions because these two words, mercy and grace, uh, can sometimes be used interchangeably, but they do have different definitions. Um, so first, mercy: when a guilty party is spared from the punishment he or she deserves. So commonly, kind of like not getting what you deserve. That's a good working definition of mercy. Like when Jason took my Fritos and I didn't kill him in cold blood. That was, that was merciful. very merciful of Doug. <laughs> and those Fritos were delicious. Um, grace. So grace, then, a definition would be when an undeserving party is given a gift that they did not earn. So unmerited favor, or commonly getting what you don't deserve. That was grace in action. So in this episode, we are going to dig into a parable of Jesus that gives us a picture of both mercy and grace. Yes, yes. So let's begin the parable of the prodigal son, or as it's sometimes called, the parable of the lost son. And uh, as I, as uh, you heard from earlier, this is my favorite parable. Oh yeah, it was in the last episode. That's that. right. <laughs> <laughs> Jason mentioned that this is my favorite parable, and in fact, it is. It's 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 probably one of mine too. It's got to be. I mean, it's yeah. it's kind of it's kind of one of the quintessential like. Just go to parables. And it for me, it's just one of the most evocative, just beautifully crafted, and really not just spiritually significant, but just emotionally powerful stories. I just love it. So <clears throat> let's read that together. This comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32, by the way, if you want to have your Bible on your lap and read along. <clears throat> I got the most irritating post-nasal drip today. It goes like this. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. A few days later, this younger son packed up all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed his pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, At home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I'm dying of hunger. 
I'll go home to my father and say, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. And so the party began. Now, we've just completed our quick 21st century American reading of the parable. Uh, And the reality is that this kind of cursory reading is probably the only kind of reading that most of us ever get. But that's really a shame because what we find on the surface of this story is actually just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus originally told this story to an ancient Middle Eastern audience. And as with all Bible study, context is king. We must interpret everything within its own context. So this story simply can't be fully appreciated until we look at it through ancient Middle Eastern eyes. And so we're going to read this story again, and we're going to take our time, and I think you might experience the story in a new way. Right. So first, let's consider the audience a little bit more and think about Jesus's intentions with the story. Okay, Jesus is actually telling the story to Pharisees who condemned him for spending so much time with notorious sinners. How does he respond to them? He responds by by illustrating God's love for lost people with three stories. The first is the parable of the lost sheep. The first is the lost coin, and the second. The last son. Or the third. Wait, the I botched first, that up. The first and the second. I botched that. First lost sheep, second lost coin, third lost son. <laughs> yeah. Okay. After telling the first two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin, Jesus begins to tell the final story in verse 11. And that's where we picked up when Doug was reading. Now, let's reread this passage, not all at once, but we're going to break it down a little bit. And let's look at it with ancient Middle Eastern eyes and really unpack it. So, Doug, let's switch our eyeballs and yep. <laughs> get into it. Pop, pop. Just pop mine out. Good job. All right. <laughs> Verse 11 starts, a man had two sons. Whoa, let's stop right there. This is important detail because while this is often called the parable of the lost son, it is actually a parable of two lost sons. Yes. This story is about two <clears throat> sons who turn away from their father, only in two very different ways. We'll touch on that a little bit later, because we'll, that comes up again at the end of the parable. Mm-hmm. Um, so moving on, verse 12 says, The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, this this would be an outrageous insult in today's standards, mm-hmm. and it would have been completely and utterly unthinkable in Jesus' day. You could, most likely the crowd gasped mm-hmm. as Jesus was telling this and said what, and said what he said. They were like, oh, no, you, you don't do that. Like this that, is a deeply patriarchal culture, and very, it would have been very, very offensive. Very offensive. Um, it's, it's as if the son were saying, you're dead to me, or or basically, you're nothing but a paycheck to me. Essentially, it's saying, 
I don't want anything to do with you. I don't care if you're alive or dead. I want, I want the money. And amazingly, his father agreed to it. Okay, that's that again would have elicited gasps. Mm-hmm. He uh, so let's pause for a moment to recognize that the father is already showing tremendous mercy. He, and by the way, if I yeah, could jump in there, please do. <clears throat> there's a little detail that dawned on me um, the other day. And that is, if you read verse 12, it says, the younger son asked for this. He said, I want, I want my share of your estate now. But then what does it say? It says, so his father agreed to divide his wealth between his two sons. Yeah. The text makes it seem as though at the son's request, he actually gave the inheritance to, to both. both sons at the same time. Yeah, I don't, I, I, again, it's a parable, but um, yeah, I don't know if he did that or if he just said, if he said, this will be been. for the other side, <clears throat> this is your half. I don't know. Yeah. Um, anyway, so he, he shows, he's, he by agreeing to do this, he's showing tremendous mercy. Now, he could have just disowned the son for making such a disrespectful demand, and any other father of that day probably would have. Yeah. Let's look at verse 13 now. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. So the son not only took the money and ran, (laughs) which is bad enough, but he also squandered the money from home among Gentiles. Now, this is among non-Jews. So he spent his Jewish inheritance in a Gentile land and slept with Gentile prostitutes, which we learn according to verse 30, which we'll read in a little bit. So for... The Jewish audience of Jesus' day, this is just about as bad as it could possibly be. Quite literally, murder would probably have been more honorable than this. To, to do this kind of thing, uh, to, to spend a Jewish inheritance among Gentiles and to be among Gentile prostitutes was just about as bad a moral picture as Jesus could possibly have painted for the Pharisees he was speaking to. Then he goes on in verse 14. Uh, through 16, saying, About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him out into his fields to feed the pigs. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding to the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Now, it's important to understand that there is real uh, religious significance to this, that pigs under the Jewish law, or the law of Moses, were ceremonially unclean. And so this job that he took in desperation was not only physically filthy, you know, taking care of pigs, but also morally and spiritually degrading for him. He was actually violating the law of Moses by, by doing this thing. <clears throat> so this would have been pretty much the most shameful job that any Jewish man could possibly occupy. Just, just imagine this picture that Jesus is painting. Yeah. Imagine the crowd that's listening, like... It yeah. just speaks so much. We, we said last week when we talked about interpretive keys that the details of the parable are there primarily to create a vivid picture, and that's mm. exactly what Jesus is doing here. This is a extremely uh, vivid and poignant picture of this man's plight. <clears throat> there's actually a, as we're talking about you know feeding pigs and all that stuff, there's actually an ancient Hebrew saying that says, cursed is the man who would raise swine. So you're talking about a job that would just be absolutely, utterly shameful for this young man. <clears throat> so what Jesus is telling us here is that things for this young man are truly as bad as they could possibly be. Now, Jesus is obviously making a point here. As he tells the story, he's painting the most shameful picture that he can possibly imagine. The son's sins are egregious, 
and his situation winds up just about as destitute as any Jew could possibly imagine. Now, the question is, why is Jesus creating such a vivid and, and pitiful picture of this, of this lost son? And the answer is because he wants to make something very, very clear through this parable, that no sin and no shame is greater than the mercy of the Father. Yeah, so as we continue through the parable, in verse 17 then, it's, uh, in 18 and 19, we'll say, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. The son has reached rock bottom, right? And he's he is ready to turn from his sin and try to make things right. But he he doesn't dare ask for his former position as son. He decides instead to ask only for a job as a hired hand. He he's so desperate that he's happy to take even the lowest job if only it will allow him back into his father's house. And some suggest that he wanted to become a hired hand so that in time he might repay what he had taken from his dad. Now, do you notice also that he is greatly underestimating his father's mercy? He, he prepares a speech, and he doesn't seem to think that his dad would ever take him back as a son. He doesn't, it doesn't even say, would you take me back as a son? No. All right. Would you take me back as, as a hired hand? He goes straight to the hired hand, um, and, and it almost seems like he's expecting his father to react harshly, and you know, in, for, in many cases, that could be a true assumption. Mm-hmm. Um, he he never he never 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 expected the level of mercy that his father would soon show. Mm-hmm. Now let's look at verse twenty. We're getting into the crescendo here. It says, "So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming, which is a, an obvious posture of deep love and longing. This the the father saw him coming from a long way off, probably because he was looking. There's a sense that the father was eagerly awaiting and longing for his son's return." And it says, filled with love and compassion, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Now, this may be one of the most underappreciated passages in the Mm -hmm. entire New Testament, if not the entire Bible. Now, the modern Western reader, like us, sees that and thinks, you know, how nice. What a sweet reunion. I can picture it. It looks so lovely. We picture them, you know, running in, in slow motion and... It's a very hallmark channel. fire playing in the background. It just, it just, it seems like a heartwarming moment, but there is so, so much more going on in this moment than meets our, our modern eyes. Now, again, as we said earlier, we need to see this story through ancient Middle Eastern eyes. And so to do that, we need to understand a few things. First, a Middle Eastern patriarch, a, a head of the family in Jesus' day, never ran. No. Never, never ran. It was considered highly undignified for a grown man to run. No marathons for them. No marathons. Apparently, just not a lot of physical fitness. (laughs) I don't know. But that was just not something. So an an older man of a family would not run. And partly that's because men wore long tunics in those days. And in order to run, they had to pull up their robes to free their legs to keep them from tripping. 
And so doing so would reveal their bare legs. And in the ancient Middle East, it was extremely shameful for a man to show his uncovered legs. So this would would have been a genuinely humiliating scene for the father. <clears throat> he would show his bare legs in order to run. Now, not only embarrassing for, for, for any respectable Middle Eastern man, but for a family patriarch, this would have been accentuated even further. So Jesus' immediate audience would have been absolutely astonished by the father's actions. And what's more is that no Jewish community of that day would allow a son like this, who had disrespected his father so severely, to return home. Because he's, he had dishonored his father by demanding his inheritance and squandering it among Gentiles and turning to a life of sin, the townspeople would gather to shame him publicly by performing a ceremony called kazaza, which is a ritual that would permanently banish him from the community. It's, actual, it's actually a ritual that's still practiced in some places to this day. There is a, a community rallying together to push out a member who had dishonored it and disrespected it and had proven it, uh, himself to be uh, an unworthy member of that community. Yes. Yeah, so why did the father run? Now, the text says that he was filled with love and compassion, and no doubt he ran in part because he loved and he missed his son and he longed to have him back. It's such a beautiful example of love, mm -hmm. of of the love that a father can have for a son or the love for a parent and a child. Like, totally. It's beautiful. But... As, as Doug was just talking about, there's more than that. Now, the father probably ran in order to get his son before he entered into the village. He wanted to get to his son before the rest of the community in order to spare him from the taunting and rejection of the villagers. His, his dad, this father, wanted to get to him before everyone else ran him out of town. Think about this picture. The father hiked up his tunic, bore his legs, and he ran with all of his might to embrace his son, humiliating himself in front of the community, who no doubt would have been close behind, in order to save his son from the shame and punishment that awaited him. And when he embraced his son, he gave him not only affection, but protection. Mm. Right? There would be no banishment ceremony. And the mercy of the Father was shocking and on display for all those who witnessed it. No one could accuse the Son to whom the Father ran to protect. Punishment, therefore, was off the table. Hmm. This makes me think back to last episode when we were talking about uh, the prophet Nathan speaking to David and that story of the lamb and the rich man who stole the lamb um, unjustly and, and killed it. Um, you know, to, to, to take care of a guest. And, and the outrage that David felt toward that story is probably the same outrage that the Pharisees, who, as a reminder, were Jesus' mm -hmm. immediate audience to this story. This is not a story he was just telling to the general public. He was speaking to the Pharisees for this. <clears throat> but I have a feeling that the sense of disgust that David felt toward the rich man who had stolen from the poor shepherd is the same sense of disgust that the Pharisees would have felt toward this young son. Remember, this was a day where patriarchal society was at full strength, and this son's actions were absolutely despicable. And so this is a picture, uh, th this merciful, merciful act of the father would have been so completely mind-blowing to the Pharisees who were listening, who were all about justice and obeying the law of Moses and all these things. So this was a powerful, powerful moment. Then we go on verse 21 uh, all the way through 24 here. 
His son said to him, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet, and kill the calf we've been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast, for the son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. So the party began. So the son begins his rehearsed speech, but his dad just basically interrupts him right off the bat. He doesn't even let him get his speech out. You know, the son had had kind of thought through this in advance, and he was gonna he was gonna say all these things to his dad. Doesn't even let him get it all out. <clears throat> now he immediately goes into just heaping blessings onto his son. It says that uh, he asked for the finest robe to be brought out, which would have no doubt been one of the father's own robes, which is a kind of a picture of of the son's reinstatement into the family. And the father was not going to make a servant out of his son. Instead, he replaces his filthy mud-stained clothes with the finest clothing that he has to offer. And he puts a ring on his finger, which symbolizes his family bond and his birthright being brought back into, uh, into family life. He gives him sandals to wear and restores him all the, privilege, all the privileges of sonship. And even more than that, in fact, he, he gives him even more than when he had left. So the father throws a party with the most lavish food he can offer, uh, just symbolizing the pure joy and um, and the grace that the father is giving. Yeah, and it is with this story that Jesus illustrates the love of God, not with a dignified display of power, but with the overflowing affection of a father. God's love is the highest kind of love, and it, it is uninhibited by pride. It is it is tender enough for an embrace at the edge of town and strong enough to annihilate sin, shame, and death forever. But the parable is not over yet. Jesus doesn't end his story there. Jesus concludes the story with one last scene between the father and the older brother. Now, we've been focusing so far on the 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 son that seems more obviously lost because he left town and you know the majority of the text is devoted to this first son the son that asked for the inheritance and left and came back and all this stuff but <clears throat> we need to take time on this last uh, few verses verses 25 through 32 where we talk about the elder son and I'll read that now and then we'll we'll come back and discuss it meanwhile the older son was in the fields working when he returned home He heard music and dancing in the house, and he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him, but he replied, All these years I've slaved for you and never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And in all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf? His father said to him, Look, dear son, you have always stayed by me, and everything I have is yours. We had to celebrate this happy day, for your brother was dead and has come back to life. He was lost, but now he's found. Now, this is the part of the story that Jesus concludes with. This is how the story ends. This is what Jesus drove home with the Pharisees, his audience. 
he was making clear to them that they are the older son. The older son is actually the main point of this story. The younger son does not represent the Pharisees. The older son does. Mm -hmm. Now, the Pharisees strain to obey all God's commands, but they don't have hearts like his. They never really receive God's mercy, so they don't know how to give it to anyone else. They see God's favor not as something that's given graciously, but as something that they have rightfully earned for themselves. And it's interesting that Jesus leaves this story open-ended. He doesn't tell us what becomes of the older son. His fate is uncertain, which is exactly the tension that Jesus is trying to create for the Pharisees. He's essentially asking them, will you turn? Will you take on the heart of God and show mercy to others, mercy to sinners? All we know in the end, as far as this older son is concerned, all we know is that the lover of prostitutes is enjoying the party, while the dutiful but self-righteous older brother sits outside in the dark. In this parable, we learn that there are no limits to the mercy and grace that God will give to anyone who comes to him. But we also learn that as God's children, we must show mercy and grace to others as well. And we ought to rejoice whenever the lost are found. Whew. Can you see why it's my favorite? What a parable. <clears throat> Hands down, That's my So favorite. good. So good. <clears throat> Shall um, we talk about some doables? Let's do some doables. Um... First, pause the episode right now. But now I should tell you what to do. They give you what they're supposed to do. Pause the episode and give thanks to your heavenly Father for the amazing kindness that He has shown you. You can do that now, and then come back. Yep. All right, you're back. Great. Um, second, take time to reflect on this question: Am I withholding mercy from someone? And if so. What step of kindness is God calling you to take? Um, maybe you need to listen back on our episodes that we did earlier last year on conflict resolution. Um, is there somebody that you are withholding mercy from? Hmm. Um, third, there's this really great book that we stumbled that upon. We, we literally <laughs> stumbled upon in, in, in an empty office. It was just laying there on a bookshelf. And it we called like, to us like Jumanji, but in a it, good way. It felt, I heard the drums like Jumanji, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's called The Return of the Prodigal Son, A Story of Homecoming, and it's by Henry Nowen. And it's literally a book. It walks through the parable, but it parallels this as the author is looking at, a, at the painting called A Return of the Prodigal. By Rembrandt. By Rembrandt. <clears throat> and... And that's the cover of the book is the painting, and it's it's very good. Yeah. So highly so, encourage you. So it's this, it's it's a Rembrandt painting inspired by the biblical para, parable. Yeah. And it's now in reflecting on the painting and the story side by side. It is really brilliantly and beautifully written. You'll really enjoy it. It'll it'll, it'll help you see the story with even greater depth. Yeah, and then uh, one thing that you should be aware of is we talked a, l a lot in this episode about um, interpreting um, parables in light of their context in, 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 in putting on your glasses of ancient Middle Eastern eyes and what they would have been seeing and hearing. Um, and there's a great book that can help you do that. It's called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and it's by Kenneth E. Bailey. And um, it talks a lot about 
uh, the parables and Jesus' teachings and stuff of that time um, in in how they would have been understood and perceived in context. Yeah. Oh, man, that thing will... I mean, that's just a good textbook to keep, you know, on your shelf. That thing will just totally blow wide open the way you read, especially the New Testament, um, and help you see a lot more depth that you just can't see because you just don't live in the same context. So, so really check that one out. I highly recommend it. It's on Amazon. I'll link it in the show notes. <clears throat> Jason, anything else we need to tell him before we wrap up? Uh, we love you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's what we did... Is there anything that, oh, I guess we didn't plug much this this episode. Um, Foundations is coming back, Lake Forest, mm-hmm. if you want. Uh, on January 23rd and 30th, we're uh, going over the Bible. Um, so you can check out southback.com slash foundations uh, for in-person classes here or to see stuff online. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, check that out. You can also go to saddleback.com slash foundations. Did you just say that? I did. Uh, just you can sure. go to saddleback.com slash grow to see everything that we're forgetting. Yes, that is true. All right, everybody. Well, Jason said it. We love you. We hope you'll join us again next week as we talk about another key theme in the parables of Jesus. Have a great week. We'll see you next time. If you enjoyed this episode, consider giving us a rating or a review on iTunes. If you do, you'll help other people find us in the future. You can also listen to these episodes on YouTube. Subscribe to the Saddleback Church YouTube channel for these conversations, plus lots of video content. And if you're already listening to us on YouTube, subscribe to the Doable Discipleship Podcasts on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app, so you can listen in the car or wherever else you go. Don't forget to visit saddleback.com doable to check out all our previous episodes. And go to saddleback.com grow to find spiritual growth resources and view a calendar of upcoming events. Lastly, you can always get in touch with us by emailing maturity at saddleback.com. Send us your thoughts, send us your questions, your Bible questions, your life questions, whatever. Who knows? Your question just might inspire an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning in to Doable Discipleship. I'm Doug Jones, and I hope you'll join us again next week.